what really motivates me to plan my funeral is like, you know what? I can smash the patriarchy with my corpse and during my lifetime. Like, that's what's important to me. Welcome to Unladylike, where we find out what happens when women break the rules from beyond the grave. I'm Caroline. I'm Kristen. And did y'all know the funerary future is female? According to the National Association of Funeral Directors, women make up 60% of mortuary school students. But whether we're talking about morticians, end-of-life nurses, even taxidermists on Instagram, the way today's guest, Sarah Chavez, sees it, morbid girls are going to save the world because, hello, they're not afraid of death. Sarah is one of the directors of The Order of the Good Death, where she really evangelizes healthier ways to relate to and engage with mortality. Death is such a huge part of our lives. It's one of the biggest questions, you know, that we kind of grapple with in our existence. And so to not be interested in, I I think, is kind of morbid myself. For years now, Sarah has written, studied, and talked about how we're conditioned to process death, whether through ceremonial foods, religions, or cultural traditions like the Mexican-American ones she grew up with. Her blog, Death and the Maiden, also explores the gender stereotypes wrapped up in death cultures, like how gender and ghost hunting intersect, and why pale women with tuberculosis were beauty idols in the 18th century. But what got us so pumped to talk to Sarah is how she really means it when she talks about smashing the patriarchy with her corpse. Through the good death lens, if the personal is political, then determining what happens to our bodies when we die and how we're memorialized is like the ultimate feminist act. Think of it as kind of like the unladylike inverse to all of our anti-aging striving. Yes, please. So in this episode, Sarah's going to help walk us through how women are reclaiming their death space and bury some ladylike myths along the way. All to find out, how do you smash the patriarchy with your corpse? Is it a feminist act to pursue a good death? To me, it it is. Because these systems that have been set up, who are they really serving? They were set up primarily to serve and benefit men uh, financially and socially. So just being educated and making educated choices about how you want to die and what you want done with your body, I think, is incredibly feminist. Those systems Sarah's talking about cover everything from end-of-life care to funeral and burial services. And you know, Caroline, I just never connected my feminism to what happens to my body after I die. Yeah, same. I mean, here we are talking about body politics all the time, and social justice focuses a lot on how people die. But what about the decisions being made over our dead bodies? Well, if Sarah's talking about systems and decisions being made primarily to benefit men, you know what that means, right? Oh, yeah. It's time to unpack a coffin of claptrap. 
Unpack the Claptrap is where we put on our ghoulish feminist goggles and dig through the cemeteries of history to find out why things are the way they are. And fortunately, Sarah's here to introduce us to a rich history of women's death work and how we got kicked out of it. So death and dying, these were once events that occurred at home. At home, of course, it was like the domain of women. Death care and care of the dying was really kind of viewed as an extension of childbirth and caring for children. So nursing the ill, death, dying, corpse care was all considered to be feminine work. And as a result, for most of the 19th century, women really defined and completely controlled American death and mourning culture. And the death economy was really a distinctly gendered enterprise. Death and burial were largely split into his and hers roles, emphasis on hers. Women's duties included end-of-life care, washing the body, dressing it in the deceased's best outfit, posing the body in a, you know, comfortable position, as comfortable as a body can get, and making it look as natural as possible. Meanwhile, the fellas were building the coffins and digging the graves, so really, women by far had the most contact with the dead bodies. And while every culture has their own death rituals, as we move into the mid-19th century, Victorian women in the West were expected to step back and weep with propriety. And there was even a dress code. So not only did these women have very strict rules about what kinds of clothes to wear, spoiler, it was a lot of black, they also had to sport these heavily dyed weeping veils that sometimes caused blindness and even death from all of the toxic chemicals in the fabric. I mean, fatal irony alert, y'all. And around this same time, there's a new death development that starts pushing those weeping women onto the sidelines. This is when the practice of embalming was introduced. And just to be clear so everyone knows, embalming is the process of introducing chemicals into the body to temporarily slow the process of decomposition. Embalming is a completely unnecessary process, by the way, and it's not legally required, as many folks think, but it came in pretty handy during the Civil War when more than 600,000 people, mostly soldiers, died on the battlefields, and tens of thousands were then embalmed to be shipped back home for a final look. But it got really, really popular when Lincoln was assassinated and his corpse was embalmed and went on a, a corpse tour. He traveled like 1,700 miles and made stops along the way, and people came out in droves to see his corpse. I think they probably sold T-shirts. Kidding. They didn't. <laughs> they totally didn't do that. But when men discovered that they could profit off of this thing that women were doing and kind of push them out and marginalize them, um, saying, you know, no, you can't do this. It needs to be done by a professional and there's science involved. Um, it really became the domain of privileged white men. They were able to kind of push this narrative that uh, death care was necessary because the corpse was dangerous or it needed special treatment, which is absolutely false. A dead body is completely safe, safer than a live one, actually. 
We Googled, and it's true. I mean, if people had diseases before they died, of course, their corpses can spread it if they aren't handled correctly. But what Sarah and the CDC are saying is that bodies don't just cause problems by virtue of being dead. They don't get, like, death cooties that we can catch. Right. Thank goodness. Uh, But once embalming was all the rage, dying became something that you couldn't really take care of at home anymore. When death and dying became professionalized, it ended up creating these two huge profit-earning industries, the medical and the funeral industry. Boy, did it. And the effects of this professionalization really permeated other parts of our lives. I mean, around this time is when we started calling living rooms living rooms to basically rebrand the space in our homes where we would have laid out the dead for a final family visit. So by the early 1900s, funeral parlors had basically taken over the death business. And you have magazines like the Ladies' Home Journal encouraging readers to make living rooms happen. (laughs) That's quite a branding effort. I know, right? But this whole living room thing and the embalming, it all just served to push real live women away from caring for the dead. And so women went from having control over death and dying into kind of being pushed into the role then of consumer. And today, the death industry sells us a lot. There's a casket, a burial plot, the flowers, the hearse. All this stuff can easily reach upwards of $10,000. I mean, embalming alone can run you $700. But Caroline, the thing that really gets me is thinking about how embalming has also preserved the sexist beauty myths and body scrutinies that haunt us while we are alive. We cannot shake the male gaze, even when we're corpses. Uh, There were once commercial industries for manufacturing burial clothing. So the options for men were like always the expected suit and tie, but shrouds and burial clothing for women usually looked like negligees or lingerie. Oh, so historically, then, the tradition wasn't to put women in, like, a church dress or or something similar. Back in the day, yes. But, like, during the 30s and 40s and 50s, no. It was, like, a frilly thing that you see, like, women going around the house in with their cigarette and their, their extravagant, beautiful nightgown and robe with furs in, like, a 1940s film <laughs> with heels, with, like, slippered heels with the poof ball on the toe, like that kind of thing. <laughs> See, if I were buried in my pajamas, it would just be sweatpants and a T-shirt with holes in it. Yeah, exactly. That gendered consumer professional dichotomy really solidifies around the growing funeral industry. Trade journals with fun names like The Casket and The Sunny Side were really gung-ho about how manly this work was, and they loved to profile founding fathers of the business. They were also gung-ho about how, quote, handling the dead is too heavy a work for a lady, and, quote, women would faint at the sight of blood. But Sarah knows of somebody who would beg to differ. One of the stories that I really appreciate the most is that the first funeral home owner and undertaker that was a female in the United States was a Black woman named Henrietta Duerte. And her husband had owned a funeral home, and when he died, she took over his business and ran it. So not only did she run this very profitable funeral home, but she also used it 
as part of the Underground Railroad. Whoa. Yeah, she would help people escape. And that's part of the history of funeral homes in Black communities, is that churches were often targeted or a known place where people would gather, but nobody really would think that people were having meetings and organizing inside a funeral home. And that didn't stop with Henrietta Duarte either. For a more recent example, you can hop forward to the 1955 lynching of teenager Emmett Till. So his mother, Mamie, decided to have an open casket funeral because there was just no way to make his body look peaceful. And she wanted people to confront that. And they did. Photographs made it into papers around the country and served as a huge catalyst for the civil rights movement. Yeah, Mamie wasn't the only woman challenging notions of post-mortem propriety. For instance, just take a stroll down to your local crematorium. Yeah, Caroline, women were a huge part of modern cremation's acceptance in the U.S. Because when it was first introduced here back in 1876, people were like, uh, is this the devil's work? It was downright scandalous. People were like, oh, that's so, like, it's unchristian and undignified and, like, satanic. See, all of this is happening at the turn of the 20th century, as the importance of hygiene and sanitation are really catching on in an effort to prevent the spread of disease, particularly in crowded urban areas. So many of these early cremation activists considered it more sanitary, more space conscious, and just plain superior to putting embalmed bodies in the ground. Many of the first bodies cremated in crematoriums across the United States were the bodies of women. There are actually a number of crematories that are still around today that will have like plaques or will honor the women that were the first to be kind of cremated. And get this, leading suffragists like Lucy Stone and Matilda Jocelyn Gage were among the earliest adopters of cremation, partly so they didn't have to be buried in church cemeteries because they associated the church with a lot of patriarchal claptrap. And in more recent history, women have been instrumental in holding the funeral boys accountable. Jessica Mitford's 1963 bestseller, The American Way of Death, was this massive muckraking hit. It ultimately sparked a Federal Trade Commission investigation that identified all sorts of abusive practices like charging customers for services not performed, refusing to give prices over the phone, and pressuring families into buying things that they just didn't even want. But get ready for the sad trombone, because in a lot of ways, death and dying in America still looks kind of like a picture from an old-school Sunnyside trade journal. According to Sarah, we haven't kicked the idea that death and dying aren't personal affairs, but rather belong in the highly rational, profitable, masculine realm of science and industry. And socially, we certainly haven't kicked our discomfort with being around death either. We have such, I think, an incredible privilege in Western society that really allows us to deny death. We send our dying away to nursing homes and hospitals. Uh, as soon as someone dies, the funeral home comes and kind of whisks our loved ones away from us and then later presents them in like these carefully lighted rooms. They're cosmetically and chemically altered to appear as though they weren't dead at all. 
they're laid to rest in these cemeteries and these impenetrable caskets beneath all of these layers of concrete and these beautifully manicured lawns. And in result, we have no idea what death and dying look like anymore, most of us. Um, And that means we also no longer have the tools or language to comfort fellow mourners or to contend with our own grief. And the funeral industry, which, by the way, is like a $20 billion industry, really benefits from that denial, from our reluctance to talk about or really even think about our end-of-life wishes or prepare and plan for our deaths, in contrast to like every other major event in our lifetime, like a wedding or a birth, we put so much preparation and thought and loving care into these big milestones. And death is also one of the biggest milestones as well. So what are our other options? When we come back, we'll hear more about what it means to have a good death and why Sarah sees funerals as a milestone worth planning. Down to the playlist. I find if I'm in a group of people at, you know, like a casual get-together setting and they find out what I do, I kind of end up being this weird vessel for all of their questions and fears and curiosity surrounding death and dying and grief because there is really no place for people to talk about it. We're back with Sarah Chavez of The Order of the Good Death. Other folks might release their death anxieties onto Sarah, but having that emotional space to talk about death has never really been an issue for her. So I'm Hikana. I come from a Mexican-American family, and probably most people are somewhat familiar with Dia de Muertos, Day of the Dead, and that for the most part, Mexicans, Mexican-Americans, we have a much more open... Um, I'd say healthier relationship or death positive relationship with the subject of death and dying. So for more context about this idea, look no further than the Pixar feature film Coco. Dia de los Muertos has begun. It's the one night of the year our ancestors can come visit us. I thought it might have been one of those made up things. A scholar named Ilan Stavins wrote about Coco for an op-ed in the New York Times. He said, For Mexicans, death is earthly. We build altars in our homes with framed photos of the departed next to candles, fruit, bread, and candy. This intimacy with death brings with it a certain acceptance. Death is even celebrated. While in mainstream Anglo-America, ghosts are scary. They're monsters. Like, you're probably not inviting spirits to hang out the way you might in Mexican Dia de los Muertos celebrations. I think it's really kind of been a coping mechanism because it's a culture that's been faced with so much death and war and violence that they've really been able to find healthy ways to cope with these very unfortunate problems and hardships. When Sarah was growing up, there was one woman in particular who role modeled what that looked like. So my grandmother, she will, from 
literally as long as I can remember, she has talked about her funeral. She has her funeral completely planned out. It is paid for. (laughs) Uh, She will talk about what songs she wants played, which she changes. For a while, it was Tom Jones. She wanted What's New Pussycat played. (laughs) What's New Pussycat? Now it's like a song from West Side Story. And oh, by the way, she's bought too many grave plots as well. So (laughs) usually like conversations with my grandmother will end with, um, hey, you know, I have these extra grave plots. Do you want one? Like she's casually (laughs) offering you like a cookie or a piece of gum or something like it's just normal conversation. Sarah says her grandmother has just been face to face with death for decades She came of age in the 40s and 50s in Los Angeles, a time when there was a lot of racial violence against Mexican-Americans. And she lost her husband when Sarah was a toddler. So she has some, you know, a sort of acceptance of death and really, really looks looks forward to planning these things and planning them so that her family isn't kind of burdened with these choices. Like, she doesn't want to inconvenience others. She wants to be very upfront and to make it clear that everyone knows what she wants, taking care of the details herself, which is really a gift to us, her family members. And and I mean, she'll go right down to the last detail. Oh, do you think that I should rent a white limo or a black limo for the family to ride in from the chapel to the cemetery because I like the white one, but is that tasteless? Like, I don't really (laughs) want the black one. And then she'll end the whole conversation by saying, oh, this is going to be such a good party. Oh, I'm going to miss it. The way that Sarah's grandma thinks about death is exactly the sort of attitude that Sarah and the folks she works with at the Order of the Good Death are trying to cultivate. And, oh yeah, Caroline, I I guess we should probably explain who they are. The Order of the Good Death, in their words, is made up of a group of funeral industry professionals, academics, and artists who are exploring ways to prepare a death-phobic society for, you know, the inevitable. Yeah, they organize events like death salons, basically parties where people share thoughts and poetry and what have you about death. And they provide tons of online resources, too. One of our favorites features the founder of the order, Caitlin Doty. Caitlin's a mortician, and she hosts a video series called, well, Ask a Mortician. Hi, I'm Caitlin, and this is a skull. Welcome to Ask a Mortician. Where she answers the practical and silly questions people have about death and dead bodies, like how to plan a funeral when you're fat, or why do we close a corpse's mouth? When people picture a dead body, they picture one lying in an open casket or on an autopsy table on a crime show, and it's all like... That's a dead body that's been worked on. Real dead bodies are all like... The Ask a Mortician videos totally capture the spirit of the order, which is to make death easier to talk about. One of the other ways Sarah does this day-to-day is by answering the many and varied questions that the order gets via email. People want to know if they can eat or cook with the cremains, the ashes after a person has been cremated. That's actually Mm -hmm. a really common question or thing, like, is it safe to do so? 
And is it? It, it, I mean, I wouldn't recommend it, but it's not going to hurt you in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> Be kind of not exactly the flavor enhancer that you want to use. Sure. Um, you know, we get a lot of very difficult, very sad emails every week as well. A lot of them come from individuals from the trans community that are very worried about protecting their identity in death. Um, there are all of these horror stories of people being misgendered after they die. So we try and help advocate and put information out there on how you can protect your identity and your wishes in death. And it's really simple. It's just by filling out a form called an advanced directive. This is also called a living will, and it's basically a document to specify how you want things to go if you're incapacitated. And they're a good idea for any of us to set up. But for trans and gender nonconforming people in particular, advanced directives or living wills can provide guidance for respectful care after they die, which is so crucial for avoiding things like dead naming, which is what happens when trans people are basically reassigned to their gender assigned at birth. Sarah says she also hears from a lot of young women looking for reassurance. I get a lot of emails from young girls who say, hey, I'm really interested in um, working maybe in forensic science or becoming a pathologist or becoming a funeral director or something like that. And what will happen is, is that they're really shamed about it. It's how are you going to get a boyfriend if you do creepy stuff like that? Like, you're so <laughs> morbid. Like, why can't you just be a normal girl? To which Sarah and her Order of the Good Death compatriots say, death is normal. This is the exact point of the movement that we're leading. We call it the death positive movement. It, it has nothing to do with like, Oh, your grandma's dead. Look on the bright side. It, it's not like that. It's not be positive that you're going to die. It's very much like the body positive movement or the sex positive movement in that we are trying to examine and engage with a subject that is kind of or a lot of people would describe as being taboo um, and has a lot of, of complicated feelings around it. Sarah says the order tries to pull back the mourning veil, so to speak, on the dying process and really show people that they have more options than the traditional and very expensive casket, funeral, and gravestone combo. So many of us um, nowadays, because of our advances in medicine, we are able to live so much longer. We often don't end up going to our first funeral until we're, say, in our 30s. So we have, again, like no experience or idea, many of us, what death and dying is about, except what's kind of presented on TV or in movies or in video games. So um, one of the things that we really advocate for is what was historically the norm, so about 150 years ago, is home funerals in which the family and friends kind of reclaim this role of taking care of our dead, of bathing and dressing the body for burial, spending time with the body, creating rituals and a funeral that's meaningful and healing to us as individuals in lieu of basically kind of going along with 
what the funeral industry wants and lining their pockets because it really doesn't seem to support or serve the needs of most families anymore. So a good death is a death that you think about, you consider, and you choose that represents the values that you had in life. And if your living values were to tell the patriarchy to stuff it, then in death, you know, you can make sure the male gaze isn't checking you out in a negligee. Now that's resting in power. So giving our bodies up to nature in whatever way kind of makes us happy and comfortable, and whether that's like not shaving, not being ashamed of your period, or allowing your corpse to decompose naturally, freely, that's a feminist act too, I think. I think there's beauty and relevance to every single stage of our existence, and that really includes aging and dying and death. And because men have been regulating our bodies for centuries, in death, I really encourage women to be free of those expectations and just be. That's fine if you want to choose to be embalmed. Just be educated about what your choices are, and there are so many interesting things being developed around our corpses and how we die right now. Like, you could be pressed into vinyl and become an album. (laughs) You can be a diamond. You could become a firework or a bullet if, like, I don't know, that's your thing. Um, But there are so many choices and interesting um, technology to choose to do with your corpse after you die Sarah says she's thought about cremation, donating her body to a body farm, which Google it if you don't know what that is, or being buried in a traditional Mexican shroud called a rebozo. But to Sarah, the pursuit of a good death is about more than picking what you want to do with your body when you're gone or what Tom Jones song to play at your funeral. It's also about being able to talk about death while we're all still here. So, how has your work? in and around good death and death positivity, how has that work affected the way you view loss in your personal life and vice versa? Um, First, it doesn't make it any easier in a way. Like, death is always horrible. Death always sucks. Um, It's painful. It's uncomfortable. And it's just really difficult. But as Sarah learned firsthand, some types of death are easier to talk about than others. So what happened was, is that I was thrilled, thrilled to be pregnant. It was totally planned for. And several months into the pregnancy, I received this completely unexpected diagnosis that My child had a completely incurable disease, and my only choices were to decide how I wanted my child to die. At this point, Sarah was already involved in the death-positive world, so she knew about some of her options, like that she could seek support from an end-of-life guide and a grief specialist— but she still had to interact with doctors and nurses who couldn't or wouldn't answer her questions and friends who were so uncomfortable with her grief. Almost a year later, Sarah went to an event about death literacy. And instead of name tags, guests were invited to write down the name of someone they'd lost. And I was like, well, you know, 
this is clearly, these people are comfortable talking about death. So I'm going to, I'm going to put my baby on mine and went into the party and was there for a couple of hours. And as soon as people like glanced at my name tag, they would immediately look away like divert their attention, pretend they were like into their phone. The only people that talked to me that night were the hosts. And so I learned to be, not share anything and really like deal with what I had to deal with in silence, in in isolation. And it's heartbreaking that at the time when our loved ones need us the most, We fail them because we're so deeply uncomfortable about facing pain and talking about death and grief. Sarah hopes her work at the Order helps people be more comfortable talking about death and grief. She doesn't want other folks to feel unsupported in the ways that she did. I mean, clearly, Kristen, we've all got a lot of work to do. But Caroline, the good news is that there are a lot of women who are taking up this charge. When we come back, we'll hear more about why that is and who gets to have a good death in the first place. Stick around. We're back with Sarah Chavez. And you know, Kristen, Sarah, her grandma, and all the gals at the Order of the Good Death aren't the only women getting involved in the world of death positivity. There's been this huge interest in the past few years of people, particularly women, which I find very interesting, of reclaiming that role at the deathbed and taking care of the body. And they usually call themselves end-of-life guides or death doulas or death midwives. And much like the support that a midwife gives at birth, a death midwife or doula would support and guide the dying individual and their family through the end of the dying process and support them if they wanted to have a funeral at home, how to take care of the body, um, help with the paperwork, things like that. And one of the things that I find most interesting is that a a lot of the women that are taking up the mantle of these roles are women that are, they're older women. Caroline, this reminds me of that concept of the good death movement as the unladylike inverse of all of our anti-aging pressures. And, and part of that is why Sarah doesn't think that these women's age is a coincidence. And I suspect that whether they're aware of it or not, a lot of the women that are looking into this work and are reclaiming these roles are hoping to imbue this time of life with the value and kind of perspective and importance that it really deserves, really celebrating that period of life and giving them, you know, giving themselves these really important, challenging roles. And it's not just death doulas. We mentioned at the top of the show that mortuary students are now majority women. Women are also 43% of funeral directors, up from just 5% 40 years ago. And these women, following in the footsteps of their cremated suffragist sisters, 
are getting a lot of positive media attention. I mean, who doesn't want to click on a story framed as being about IRL Wednesday Adamses? Yeah, I mean, I, I want to click on that. But Sarah's not always down with how the media interpret this so-called trend. Oh, it must be because, you know, women do emotional labor, like, so well. And you know what else? Women are really good party planners. And planning a funeral (laughs) is just like a party. So, you know, like, they like to pick out, like, just the right flowers and, like, just the right music. So, you know, of course that's, like, a natural progression for women to go into the funeral industry now. Sarah doesn't buy that. Sure, some women may be hopping on the funeral train because they love to throw a good party, but she thinks that, for the most part, women are getting involved for those deeper reasons, kind of like the death doulas wanting to have a real impact on the family's experiences. Plus, she says that women have probably always been interested in being morticians, funeral directors, and end-of-life guides. But for the past hundred years or so, when dudes took over... It just wasn't really an option. You know, if I say mortician or undertaker, like, what what do you see? Like, some old white dude, like, dressed in a in a suit, maybe from a, a horror movie, like, kind of character actor guy. Um, you know, we have this idea of what undertakers and morticians are. And I think that women are able to see other women in these roles shows them that, yes— you can absolutely do this, too. This There is a place for you. Well, on Death and the Maiden, you wrote that women are disproportionately interested in the quote-unquote morbid uh, because death is a constant companion for women. So can you tell us a little bit about that concept? So I think that women have to be aware of death in a way that your average, particularly white men, are not having to consider or deal with. Murders of women by their domestic partners or by someone that they know, a father or a brother, are at epidemic levels in the United States. So whether it's walking through a parking lot, going to the grocery store, going to church, just being at home, For many women, none of these places are safe, particularly if you are a trans woman or even more so if you're a black trans woman. So we're constantly have this threat in our minds and at the forefront of all these different ways that we have to interact with death in a way that a lot of men do not have to contend with or be conscious of. Sarah says she thinks this is a big reason why we see women at the forefront of so many activist efforts that address death and violence, like Black Lives Matter, Me Too, or Ni Uno Menos. That's not one more, a movement in Latin America protesting gender-based violence. So while people might say that, oh, we're all the same in death, that's not really true. It's kind of like white people saying, oh, I don't see color. Like, it's clear to Sarah that having a good death is a privilege that race, class, gender, access to health care, all of these factors play into. One personal example for Sarah goes back to Dia de los Muertos. Typically, Sarah travels back to Mexico to see how different regions interact with death and celebrate the holiday. 
But last year, Sarah stayed in East Los Angeles, the area where she grew up, to witness a modern, political-minded Day of the Dead. Many of the altars she found highlighted issues like police violence or violence against the LGBTQ community in the neighborhood. And they acknowledged the injustice and pain of these deaths. But they were still beautifully decorated and celebrated the people's lives. Really what it's about is regarding the very difficult subjects of death and dying and grief as not taboo subjects, not things that should be kept behind closed doors, and that by treating it the way we do in our society, with fear, with shame, with a lot of secrecy surrounding it, um, that we do more harm than good to our society. Uh, it, but instead, by confronting our fears and creating these spaces where we can learn about and dissect and examine and discuss these difficult issues, we can actually change our culture and our lives for the better. We will be sharing the picture she took, y'all, because they are seriously beautiful. Yeah, and, and that spirit, the both-and spirit of these altars in L.A., that's exactly how Sarah wants every culture to interact with death. Right. And the ultimate goal of the death-positive movement isn't actually so much about dying, but more about improving the quality of how we live. And if we can kind of maintain and cultivate a healthier relationship to death and mortality and understand what is underlying or motivating some of our behaviors and see how our fear of death is making us react, then we can become re responsible and recognize when decisions that we make, beliefs that we have, um, views that we have are tied not into reality or facts, but our fear, our fear of death. In other words, maybe getting cozy with death will help us lead better lives and even treat each other better. And Sarah says that starts by getting positively morbid on a personal level. Goodness, start looking at your funerals as you do your weddings or your birthday parties or whatever. There are so many other options out there and also that don't cost like seven to $10,000 um, that are healthier and nurturing and healing for you and your loved ones. So I definitely advocate for choices and think that educating yourself and making those educated choices for what you want is a feminist act. And I think those of us that are working to kind of change these narratives and really drive the future of death care, what we're doing is we're really reclaiming those roles and reclaiming those spaces. And I think that's incredibly feminist work. Kristen, full disclosure, in the past couple of years, I have been thinking more about what I want to happen with my body after I die. But it really wasn't until we talked to Sarah that I was prompted to think of how any of that ties in with my attitudes about feminism or the environment or gender or class at all. I mean, I knew that I didn't want the traditional, like, graveyard burial. I feel like that's a total waste of space, not being self-deprecating. <laughs> um, so if I don't go the cremation route, which has its own environmental problems— I might want to have a green burial or even, like, donate my body to science. I really have thought about donating my body to a body farm. 
And again, y'all, Google Body Farms if you are not familiar with what these are. I'm also really into the idea of donating my body to science. And I know just for me personally, my parents are older end-of-life kinds of discussions have started. And especially for my mom, um, I'm really excited for this episode because of the rad feminist history to be able to share some positive resources. I'm like, Mom, ring me up. Let's talk about death because I have some cool ladies to talk about. Yeah, there's some suffrage cremation activists. I know. And you love Matilda Jocelyn Gage. And you know how cool it would be to follow in her ashes. (laughs) (laughs) And now we really want to hear your thoughts about this stuff. Do y'all have big plans for smashing the patriarchy with your corpse? Have you ever been to a death salon? Are you interested in becoming a death doula? We want to hear it all. Send us an email at hello at unladylike.co or hit us up on all the social medias at unladylikemedia. Also, you know, gotta say, we would not hate it if y'all wanted to send us pics of your awesome Halloween costumes. Yes, please tag us. You can also find links to Sarah Chavez's writing, her new podcast, Death in the Afternoon, and Order of the Good Death on our website, unladylike.co. And while you're there, pick up some Unladylike merch or, you know, our book. And y'all can also subscribe to our newsletter to get a weekly dose of actually good news. And don't forget, you can hear our show without ads and get exclusive bonus content by signing up for Stitcher Premium at stitcher.com slash premium. Use the code UNLADYLIKE to get a month of free listening. Abigail Keel is the senior producer of Unladylike. Nora Ritchie is our associate producer. Mixing and sound design is by Casey Holford. Julie Subrin is our editor. Ash Sanders and Abigail Barr transcribe our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Ami Mae Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Radlett. And we are your hosts, Caroline Irvin and Kristen Conger. And next week, we're talking about running for office. The, f- <laughs> the first thing I ran for was Valentine's Day Princess, I think it was, in eighth grade. And how Valentine's Day princesses can also become president. Be sure to subscribe to our show and your favorite podcast app so you don't miss it. And remember, got a problem? Get unladylike. Also, I wouldn't want to wear, like, a negligee type of thing because... I mean, when I lay down, these A's just disappear. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> so if, if I could just have just some hands to hold them up. Ghost hands. <laughs> Ghost hands for a little push-up. Stitcher. 